Amen. Y'all can be seated. As you're being seated, find your Bibles and either open them up or turn them on. We're going to be in two passages of Scripture today. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 to begin with, and then we're going to land over in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Last week, we began talking about how Christianity is a story of death being arrested and my life and your life beginning. And if you look at our church logo, uh, you can see there in the church logo that there is a cross right there in the middle, the red cross there. And there's actually a lot of symbolism in this logo. You have the cross and the resurrection within it. You have the red cross in the middle, and then you have the stone that was rolled away, and you have the various pieces and different shapes, which represents our lives, our spiritual gifts, our perspectives, and how they all come together around a common thing, which is the cross. And I would imagine that for a lot of us within our homes, uh, we have pictures or we have crosses displayed within our homes, and we see it as good news. We see it as a symbol of hope, the symbol of Christianity. In fact, how many of you guys actually have a, a cross on right now somewhere, a piece of jewelry or something like that, that it, I won't embarrass you, that has, has a piece of cross, ah, piece, piece of cross, a cross on your body because we see it as a symbol of hope. But in ancient times, the cross really didn't represent hope. In ancient times, it would represent oppression, it would represent torture, it was a symbol that people associated with Rome, with the death of a slave, it was a symbol of torture. And so we're asking this question as a church, how did a symbol of horrific death become our symbol of eternal life? Now to answer that question, there's two things that we have to wrap our minds around and understand. First is who it was that died for our sins. And second, what did Jesus' death on the cross mean? Now turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 because who it was that died on the cross makes all the difference. You see, what you believe about Jesus determines what you believe about the cross. If you believe that Jesus is Lord. If you believe that He's the Son of God, if you believe that He is altogether holy, then you can believe that He is also the Savior. In fact, it's just a, a short move to move from Jesus is Lord to Jesus is my Savior. But if all you believe about Jesus is that He was a good guy, then the cross no longer becomes a, a symbol of hope. Neil Wofford down here is a good guy. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a friend of mine, but as good as he is, he can't be my Savior. <laughs> you can't be my Savior, Neil. Reason being is because you're a sinner. Amen, Julie? He's a sinner, right? That's right. He's a, he's a wretched, horrible sinner. Just love you too, Neil. All of us all of us have done things that are wrong, and because of that, even though you're a good guy, you're, you're a good person, you can't be the Savior because you're not the Lord. But look at what the Bible says about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. There's four passages of Scripture in the New Testament, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1, and Philippians 2, that really paint a picture for us as to who Jesus is. And here's what the Bible says. The Son is the image of 
the invisible God. So right there, a lot of people have difficulty believing in God because they say, I can't see him. I cannot empirically prove him. But the Bible says, okay, if you want to see God, look to the Son because he is the icon, the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Ultimately, all creation belongs to him. He is the heir of all things. Verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and, what does it say? For him. Jesus didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. Jesus has always been, he is, and he always will be. Jesus was there at creation. I call him the carpenter of the cosmos. As God spoke creation into order, Jesus fashioned it. And so he fashioned the glorious mountains. He cut the streams. Jesus is the creator. He is the one that has always been. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not only are all things for him, ran out of air, but all things are held together by him. He is the sustainer of all things. And he is the head of the body. Now, what is this body that the Bible speaks of here? The church. So if you think about the church as a body, as a person, then some of you might be fingers, some of you might be ankles, some of you might be knees, but guess who our head is? Christ. He's the head of the body. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so then everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus needs to be first in all things. In any of our discussions, any time we might even have a conflict, we ultimately need to ask the question, how can Jesus be honored? How can Christ have supremacy? Verse 19, the scene changes a little bit. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So earlier in the passage, it said what? Jesus is the creator of all things. And here it says that ultimately through Jesus, God is going to reconcile all things. When Jesus died upon the cross, he reconciled our souls to the Lord. Through Jesus, we might have salvation and we might be redeemed from within. And when Jesus comes again at the second coming, he will reconcile the entire creation unto himself so that all things that were created by him might give glory to him, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now that last sentence, making peace through his blood shed on the cross, is what I want to zero in on today. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and I want to ask you this question as you're turning there. What motivated Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? What what motivated Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? Now, somewhere in the room, there's a theologian, and you say to me, well, Ash, Jesus died to reveal the glory of God by redeeming sinners unto himself. And you are correct. You're not wrong in that statement whatsoever. Jesus did die to reveal God's glory. But also realize this, God's glory will radiate God's love. And God proclaims his glory by loving in ways that we simply do not deserve. From the glory of God extends the grace of God. And in doing so, God also empowers us to love one another with a godly love. So verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4 says these words, Dear friends, dear friends, 
Let us love one another. Because love is from God. And everyone who has been born of God and knows God, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Question for you. What do Frozen, Beauty and the Beast, Toy Story 3, Finding Nemo, and Lion King all have in common? They're all Disney movies. What else do they have in common? There you go. Uh, They're animated. They're also all top 50 grossing movies of all time. Not gross movies, grossing movies, okay? And they all contain a love story. Because Disney knows this, that Americans are basically obsessed with love. And so love is one of the major themes in our films and our TV shows and books, music, food, art. We have Match.com. Everywhere you go, love is in the air. And it seems as though the more that we obsess with love, the, the harder it gets like the more we obsess about it, the more that we fail, and the more that we fail, the more that we try to redefine it. And so the Bible here throws down some heavy statements about love. First of all, it says that friends of God love. That God brings us together as friends so that we might have love. It says that we're supposed to love one another. It says that love is from God. Now, love doesn't define God. God defines love. It says that everyone who loves has been born of God, that knowing God empowers you to love. And it says that everyone who loves knows God, and and the one who does not love does not know God. You see, love is part of our human nature. It's part of the way that God wired you. We We all want it, we all need it, but often we do not find it. So let's ask this question, why? Why is it that so many films are written about love? Why is it that so many people seem to be struggling for love? Why? Because often our love flows through a filter of selfishness. Now make sure you catch that line, okay? Often our love flows through a filter of what? And some of us, my guess is that some of us have struggled with love all of our life because we've had the wrong models of love in our life. We've had some misunderstandings about what it is. Or maybe we've really been looking at ourselves and we've been trying to love other people with a very selfish kind of love. And as Americans, we've often fallen fallen in love with ideas. Ideas like, love will complete me. The Jerry Maguire line. If I don't have love, I can't be happy. There's just going to be this hole in my heart that'll never be filled until I find the perfect person. Now here's the danger with that mindset. You wind up putting ridiculous expectations on people. You put ridiculous expectations on the people you date, the people that you're married to, your family, your children, because you're hoping that somehow these people can fill all the voids in your life, and the reality is that people will all let you down. There are some really good people in this world, 
but they will let you down because the scriptures teach us that we need to find our completeness in Christ. And when we know our identity is in Christ and that we've been created on purpose for a purpose, then we're not looking to flawed human beings to bring us the completeness that only God can bring to us. The second thing that we often fail, fall for is it was love at first sight. It was just love at first sight. Now, the translation to that is she was really good looking. <laughs> she was really good looking, or he was just really good looking, and I just, first time I saw him, I just, wow. Now, here's the danger that we will begin to confuse love with lust. That's the danger there. It only takes a pulse to fall in love, but it takes commitment to stay in love. Here's another premise that be our false idea that sometimes people fall for, and that is that they all lived happily ever after. Now, I do pray that your love brings you happiness, and I do pray that you'll have a happy family and a happy marriage, but we often teach our children and we often begin to believe ourselves that in life there will be this conflict, but then you're going to find the perfect person. And when you find that perfect person, the conflict will end and you'll ride off into the sunset and everybody will live happily ever after and life from then on out will just be good until the sequel comes out, right? right? And that's kind of the premise that we teach. And here's the danger. We'll begin to think that the purpose of love is just happiness, where in reality, all loving relationships, all loving relationships must go through some pain. They must learn to persevere. They must be anchored in commitment. And what, one of the things I've discovered, having been married now over 20 years, I've discovered that as you go through life together and as you go through difficulties together, guess what happens to your love? It grows stronger. You begin to see new nuances of love that you didn't see before. And the persons, people that you love become even more beautiful to you because your love is anchored in commitment and you've persevered together. And then here's another, another false idea that we fall for. I don't need love. I just don't need it. Now, this is often a reaction to pain. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has done you wrong at some point in your life. So you build a wall around you and you say, okay, nobody is going to get close enough to hurt me again. This is going to be my defense mechanism. You're not gonna, I'm not going to love you and you're not going to love me because I, I, I don't need it. I don't need you. Now here's the danger. We'll begin to isolate ourselves and we'll miss out on the real joys and the true color and beauty of life. Here's the reality. God is love. And one of the extensions of God's love is His creation. And God designed you to both give and receive love. Loving is part of the human experience. It's part of being alive. You and I, we need to experience love. Verse 9 says God's love was revealed. We don't have to guess as to what real love looks like because God revealed His love to us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Jesus becomes our model for what love looks like. Now think about Jesus' love. Was Jesus' love selfish? No. 
Incredibly selfless. God, motivated by his love, sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. My parents have been married nearly 60 years. They both turned 80 here recently. And my, my mother's childhood models of love involved abandonment and abuse. She was the unwanted child, sent away from her home to live with whatever relative would take her in. My father's childhood models involved adultery, alcoholism, abuse, and abandonment. And yet they came together and they formed a nearly 60-year marriage. Neither one of them had models of love growing up. In fact, well, I guess they had models, but they didn't have healthy models of love. And so if you ask them their secret, here's what they say. Our model of loving one another became God's model for loving us. And so they began seeing how God's love has been revealed among us, and they said, you know what? We want this kind of love. And so they broke a chain, and they created a new generation that loved in a godly way. And you know what? You can do that too. Regardless of what your past models of love have been, you don't have to be stuck in that model. You can love as God loved. God did not leave us guessing about love. He demonstrated His love for us by sending His Son into this world. And then it says, and then we may live through Him. So you can live in a loving way just as Christ lived and died for you. Verse 10 says, love consists in this, not that we loved God but that he loved us. Okay, so it wasn't a, okay, God will choose to love you if you are lovely. God says, no, I'm choosing to love you before before you even know me. God chose to love us before the foundations of the earth. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What are love's greatest enemies? Think about that for a second. What are some of the enemies of love? Y'all talk to me. What, what would you say some of the enemies of love are? Pride? Apathy? Did someone say greed? I think I heard that. Fear? Okay. Okay. What was that? Indifference? Okay. At the root of sin are pride and selfishness. From pride and selfishness begin to flow greed and apathy and all sorts of other sinful activities in our lives. But it starts with, I want what I want when I want it. Go all the way back back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. I want it. I want to be like God. I I, I don't care what God says. I, I want this and I want it right now. Pride and selfishness. Pride and selfishness are what causes our relationship with God to break down because pride and selfishness leads us to the arms of sin rather than the arms of love. Let's go one step further. Pride and selfishness are what causes marriages to break down. Rather than loving someone unconditionally and rather than loving someone in a giving way, we start loving someone in a take, 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 I want, I want, I want, I want it now. And our marriage begins to break down. Pride and selfishness breaks down our parenting. 
You owe me. God gave you to me to be this for me, 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 me. It breaks down our friendships. Think about your workplace and the conflicts that you come home and talk to your spouse about every evening. How many of those conflicts in your workplace are driven by pride and selfishness? Pride and selfishness break down, breaks down churches as well. Pride and selfishness are the opposite of the cross. God is the initiator. He sent His Son. The love we receive is not based on merit. It's based on grace. Even while we were still sinners, God said, you know what? I'm going to choose to love them. Now think about this. The one who created the heavens and the earth was suspended between heaven and earth because he loved you enough to die for your sins. Now let's talk about this word in verse 10. For many of us, it may be a new word here. It's the word propitiation. Let's say it together. Pra, pish, eation. It's not propitiation, okay? Propitiation. Now, that is a theological word in the Bible, and it's a rather harsh word in biblical terms because it means the turning away of God's wrath by an offering. The turning away of the wrath of God by an offering. In the sense of the cross, what was the offering? Jesus. But in a practical sense, we understand this word. Because we often make propitiation in our relationships. A few weeks ago, my beautiful wife Stacy walks into the dining room, and my three year old son Camden had gotten into his sister's paints, and he had poured their paint on the dining room floor. Okay? The wrath of mama was flowing through the house. But now my son immediately begins to say things like, I love you, Mommy. I love you, Mommy. I love you, Mommy. I love you, Mommy. Now what is he doing? He's trying to turn away wrath by an offering of love. He's offering propitiation. Now because she is a holy and righteous mom who truly loves her child, there still had to be consequences for his action. But the love remains. We didn't like give him away. Okay, he's still our son, still living with us. We make propitiation in our relationships all the time. Some of you are wearing jewelry of propitiation today. Somewhere along the way, you got that to turn away wrath, right? You know, right? You may even be driving home in vehicles of propitiation today. We propitiate all the time. We make offerings to turn away wrath. But what if? You've done something wrong, and there is nothing you can do or say to make it right. And what if your actions are such that there has to be consequences? So it is with God and our sin. A holy God cannot simply overlook our sin. There has to be consequences. And in ourselves, we have nothing with which to offer that can change the consequences of our sins. The Bible says that the ultimate wage of our sin, the consequence of our sin, is, is what? 
And that is why each of us, no matter how many miles we run, no matter how many protein shakes we drink, no matter how many Instagram pictures we have with a cool water bottle in our hand, no matter how healthy we are, eventually we all will pass away. Because that becomes the consequence, both spiritual and physical death become the consequence of our sin against God. For humanity, death becomes the testimony to our total inability. For God, death becomes the testimony to His total ability. God takes our inabilities and He transforms them through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, His death on the cross, God displays His ability to conquer death. And He reconciles you and He reconciles all things to Himself so that we no longer have to live as bond slaves to pride and selfishness, shackled by pride, shackled by selfishness, but instead we might live in love and grace. And so He comes to a conclusion in verse 11. My dear friends, it's an expression of love. My friends that I love, my dear, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. If God loves us so much that He would send His Son to die, then the question is, why can't we love one another? And the answer is, is that you can. Your marriage can be healed. Your family can be healed. Those strained relationships can be healed because through Christ we can love one another. God does not want you to live your life isolated and alone. He wants you to experience true love and we find it by being like Christ. Lying down our selfishness and pride and picking up the cross. Picking up the cross means that I don't care about what I want. I care about what God wants. And I seek to bring Him glory in every relationship. And when God speaks, I obey because I take up the mindset of Jesus that said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In the case of Jesus, He offered that prayer in the face of the cross. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. There is nothing more beautiful than a husband and wife who truly love one another. There is nothing more beautiful than a family that is built on love. There is nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful than a church who refuses to fight over once but chooses to live for what God wants. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the love of God needs to be extended to each other and to everyone, crossing boundaries both geographical and cultural so that people might come alive in Christ. How sweet is your name, Lord. How good you are. Love to sing in the name of the Lord. Love to sing for you all. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against it. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment. The musicians are going to come and they're going to lead us in worship. 
I'll be here at the front church. If there's anything that I can pray with you about, I'm here. My wife's over here. If, if she's a great prayer partner, if there's anything she can pray with you about, we'd love to pray with you and walk with you through your journey. Heavenly Father, I recognize that in this room there are probably some relationships that are strained. and I pray for healing. Pray for healing in marriages. Pray for healing in families. Pray, Father, for healing in our community. I pray, Lord, that you might help us to love one another as you have loved us. And Lord, as we come to this Easter season, I pray that we will not receive it with numbness, apathy, but may we receive the meaning of Easter with an awareness of just how great the love of God is. And Father, may our hearts be transformed by that love so that we are loving you, loving each other, and loving others. Help us, Lord, to come alive in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, in whose name we sing. Amen.